0: So we'll before we move into questions nine through 11, we'll go back a little bit to set some of the context for these next few questions. What does God require of man? We've uh, talked about and discussed. what does God require of, of, of every man? Question four in, in Orthodox catechism asks the Christian or asks the question rather in this way. What does the law of God require of us? It, be, it answers the question by having us look at Matthew 22 37 to 40 So let's look at that first as we sort of build up to these next few questions Matthew chapter 22 verses 37 to 40 someone read that for us whoever it gets there Matthew
1: 22 37 to 40 and he said to him you shall love God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself,
0: okay. I
1: have on those two commandments depend on the law
0: and the prophets. Okay, now, uh, we can ask ourselves, or maybe uh, phrase as a statement, nowhere do we see this or rather I'll ask us a question. Where do we see this type of obedience? In these verses 37 to 40. Where do we see that? Can we identify any person, any man who's done this? Only Jesus. Certainly not uh, men by who we are, by, by nature fallen, those who have union with Adam. But this, standard of perfection and obedience to God's law, um, loving God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. We only see this in Christ, in our Lord Jesus Christ. He was a perfect offering as sinless because he offered unto God himself perfection and obedience to God's holy commands. Uh, perfect, personal, Perpetual obedience. That's important for us to understand. Perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. Uh, question five asks us, are you able to keep all things perfectly? Now, you don't even have to be a Christian to recognize that we fall short of our own moral standards, right? We make decisions that have disastrous consequences. Uh, we give our word, then go back on it. We do things that seem right at the moment but they end up we end up regretting it the next morning Uh, christians all the more know that god is holy and there is no way that we can keep the law of god perfectly you know you see gyms that are, are are packed at the beginning of the year and everybody has this you know resolve to work out i did the same thing and you go maybe the first couple of weeks of the year, you're diligent. You got your, you know, protein set up. You got your bag. You got your alarm clock. You get up. You go to the gym. And what happens over time? Slowly, you, you know, maybe don't go as much. Other things come up, and by March, nobody's at the gym, <laughs> right? So we, we, we set these standards for ourselves, but we don't actually follow them. We we can't even keep our own word, right? Ephesians two three says that. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we by nature. What does it say? Children of wrath. We're by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This verse shows us what we have been delivered into and what we have been delivered from. We were by nature children of. Of wrath That's strong language the Bible uses. It doesn't sugarcoat man's condition naturally by virtue of their union with Adam. We all have a we have a sort of default mode. Computers have a, a default mode, a factory setting, so to speak. Um, we, by nature, our factory setting is union with Adam and children of wrath. Until the Lord changes our hearts and changes our condition. Romans 8, 7 says our minds are set on the flesh and are hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Let me have someone read Mark 7 verses 20 to 21. Mark 7 verses 20 to 21. Whoever gets there first, just go ahead and read it nice and loud for us. Thank you. So, out of his his heart, um, if you talk to folks, whether in evangelism or family, friends, co-workers, um, generally, if you ask people, you know, are you? Do you think that you're a pretty good person? Would you say that you're you're a good person? Um, I think most people would probably say, well, yeah. And then the next statement is, I'm not like such and such. Or even if it's not with their words, I would venture to say that their thought is, I'm not like adolf hitler i'm not like saddam hussein i'm not like my friend and you know who who lives down the street Uh, but the bible paints a very different picture of our condition out of the heart the thing you can't but take with you everywhere you go out of the heart comes theft murder adultery sexual immorality john Owen said we need to examine ourselves to see our own weakness and to note the power and efficacy of temptation. And ourselves, we are weakness itself. We have no strength, no power to withstand, however strong a castle may be. If a treacherous party resides inside, ready to betray at the first opportunity possible, the castle cannot be kept safe from the enemy. Traitors occupy our own hearts, ready to side with every temptation and to surrender to them all. He's saying we, if man is a, is a castle, if, if, he's, if he's a castle of a person, uh, we can protect ourselves from things outside of us. But what do you do when the traitor lives in the castle? And the traitor is one's own heart, which betrays your thoughts, your intentions, your desires. We are unable to produce any good in or from ourselves apart from God's divine hand. We are a place desolate of righteousness, empty of good, vacant of holiness, dry and brittle bones. You see that language in scripture too, these dry bones. Question six, seven, and eight, ask and answer the question of original sin. If our condition is so bad and God is sovereign and made us, why did God make man so evil? If he knew, right? we answer, no, God didn't make man evil. He actually made man good, very good. But man fell from his original righteousness. Man, by his own fault and free will, has cast away the holy commands of God. And uh, with this, uh, Zacharias, your says, the ability with which he has was originally endowed and brought himself into a state in which he can no longer render full obedience to the divine law. In other words, we are so corrupt that we are not at all able to do well and we are slaves to our overwhelming appetite for sin. So you'll, you'll hear our prayer during service at times, the songs we sing and the Christian conversations that we have, that God is just. Now, What does it mean to say that God is just? That can be a big question, but what comes to mind? God is just. He punishes all that is
1: contrary to his nature.
0: Yes, well said. He punishes all that is contrary to his own holy nature. We recognize that God is just. We talk about the justness of God, but one of the sharpest criticisms you hear is directly aimed at the doctrine and the reality that God is just number nine in the catechism puts the criticism into a question it says does not God knowing that man is by nature prone to evil does he not do injury to man when he requires of them that which he knows he cannot perform in other words if a man is so corrupt that he cannot do anything that is good then God seems unjust and in vain to require of him perfection. God created him good. He fell from his original state of goodness. God knows that he cannot do anything good apart from God. Yet God requires perfection. Not only does he require it, but he punishes those who do not have this perfection. Right? Is that just Folks will ask, is God just in doing that? How can he be good, and you say he's loving, and yet he does this? Have you had that thought before? Have you heard that before in conversations with folks? Maybe you've thought it yourself and wrestled with that. We'll say, well, I wasn't there with Adam, so it's not fair that I'm being blamed for what Adam did. Have you heard that before? How can you require perfection from me knowing that I am not able to perform it? And then how can you punish me for not doing that which you know I can't do, right? Let's try to answer the logic of that question. That's what we'll do in questions nine through 11. Question nine in an orthodox catechism. Let me have someone read that and then read the answer as well. Okay, so we can say it this way God made man capable of performing it but man by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts and graces of obedience okay your scientist explained it by saying um So he uses this sort of analogy and the language is a little a little different. But um, if we state it positively, God's justice is upheld in that he gave the ability to perform what he required. But Adam was created upright and righteous. Secondly, man uh, man covets what he did not have. We see that in Adam in the garden and has of his own accord brought this inability upon himself and his posterity. So man forfeits that grace because of his own lust for autonomy. And lastly, man's inability to comply with the requirements of the law should lead him to acknowledge and deplore his inability. So he says there are still um, good reasons why God requires perfection of man and good ends for which uh, he, he does this. But I want to go back and for a sec here and look at Genesis three verses one through seven. Let me have someone read those verses. Genesis three verses one through seven. So, keeping in mind the reality, the scriptural evidence that God made man upright and good, righteous, perfect. Let's read these verses to and get a peek again into sort of this this divine commentary on man's heart genesis 3 1 through 7. who wants to read that for us
1: now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the lord god had made he said to the woman did god actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden And the woman said to the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden but god said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it lest you die And
0: they so big leaves together and made themselves one cloths. Okay, thank you. Look at verse 6 in those in that passage. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate and gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Um, it's funny to see... have children to see yourself in your children right they imitate things you do the good and unfortunately the bad (laughs) you think like child you weren't there when I was eight and I did that how are you doing the exact same thing (laughs) in the exact same way (laughs) it's sort of strange to, to to see yourself in this way but our children do do imitate us in this mysterious way they they imitate what we do. Uh, that language you see there in verse six when the woman saw the tree, the light of the eyes, desire to make one wise, she ate of its fruit. You see that same language in First John two sixteen. There's this mysterious union and sort of copying uh that you see in all of humanity that you see in our first parents, Adam and Eve. Listen to First John two sixteen. For all that is in the world sort of the children of our first parents. The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The same language, he's saying this sort of trifecta of transgression is seen in all of humanity that we see in the garden. She saw there was a delight in the eyes, there was a lust, There was this uh, thinking this this will make me wise this pride of life it's spread throughout all humanity we imitate our first parents by nature the fact that adam was made upright but was led astray by his own wickedness through the temptation of sin shows us how powerful the allure of sin is john owen said it this way among the saints we see the solemn power of temptation Take Adam, the son of God, created in the image of God, full of integrity, righteousness, holiness. He possessed a far greater inherent stock of ability than we have since he had never been enticed or seduced. Yet no sooner did Adam enter in temptation, but he was undone, lost and ruined and all his posterity with him. What should we expect then when our own temptations, or when when in our temptations we must deal not only with the cunningness of Satan, the devil, but also with a cursed world and a corrupt heart. He sort of backs the Christian against a wall and says, you have your heart to deal with, you have Satan who is cunning, he is uh, diligent, he is powerful, and then you have the world there's always something, some temptation uh, reaching and groping for your heart in the world. What are we to do? How do we fight? How do we win? How do we succeed? In Scripture, Romans 5 to 12 shows us our federal union with Adam and compares it to union with the second Adam, Christ. Uh, federal headship, or federalism, is a term used by theologians to explain, imputed sin in Adam all of humanity is represented and accounted for using this theological framework your scientist answers the objection that says but we did not bring this sin upon ourselves it was them Adam he did it let's read Romans 5 12 to 21 who wants to read that for us Romans 5 12 to 21 right you want to go for it thanks Okay.
1: Therefore, justice through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, in the likeness of the, tresp- of the trespass of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression, for by the transgression of the one, the many died. But much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sins. For on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. But if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more than those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men for as through the one man's disobedience the many were appointed sinners even through the obedience of the one of the many will be appointed righteous now the law came in so that (coughs) transgressions would increase but where sin increased grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through jesus christ all right
0: thank you i know that was a longer passage but Man, it it can't be any more plain and clear in Scripture. Um, It pictures our union with Adam and uh, our fallen nature and state because of it and uses that and points us to the necessity of union with Christ. Uh, There is no way to be made right before a holy God apart from union with Christ. So we cannot say, well, actually, we we can say it was our, our, our first parents, but that's not an excuse for our own uh, depravity. and we, we can't say, well, if I were there, I would have done something different. Well, you sin every day. So the evidence, the proof is in the pudding. You wouldn't have done something different. You would have done the same thing. The only one who did actually do something different um, was Christ, whose life of righteousness showed that he would have obeyed perfectly. And he does in the place of all those who believe. Uh, you can... I'll read how uh, your scientist put it and then I'll give another analogy. Um, He says that if a prince were to be given or were to give a nobleman a fee and he were to rebel against him, the nobleman would lose it not only for himself but for his posterity also. And the prince would do no injustice to the children of the nobleman by not restoring to them that which was lost in the rebellion of their father. And if he does not restore it, or rather if he does restore it, it is because of his goodness and mercy, not obligation. Um, you think about the, uh, the bulls in the 90s, the uh, heyday in Jordan. There were, there were men who rode the bench <laughs> um, or were, were second string, if you can put it that way. Um, Jordan, you know, of course, he had others along with him. Um, but he carried the bulls. Right? Uh, When they won a championship, the whole team got a ring, right? Not just the starting five. Uh, They, in some sense, benefited from the work (laughs) of Jordan. Um, Same thing in the Super Bowl. There were those who never actually, some men never actually played in the Super Bowl, yet their team won, therefore they got the ring. And if their team lost, they lost. They forfeited the ring, right? So if you use this analogy and picture, we can hopefully better see and understand how our union with Adam and our union with Christ um, is, and we'll talk about this in a sec is actually just, um, and it is right and gives us a framework for how to understand federal headship. Uh, We are in union with Christ or union with Adam. Our reward is either lost in Adam and us being his posterity lost it as well, or gained, earned in Christ and being in union with him. Um, Here are a few reasons why it is still good for us that God requires perfection from men and why that requirement is not in vain, even though we cannot perform it. Um, It also reminds us that what man, or it reminds us what man was before the fall. Seeing how far we fell, the requirement of perfection should cause us with desperation to run to God, asking him to renew our fallen nature. So it reminds us of our original fallen state. God's requirement of perfection, perfect personal perpetual obedience also helps us to understand what God has done for us in Christ and helps us to understand what Christ has done on our behalf. So these are good ends for which God requires perfection still, um, although we are not able by nature to perform it. Okay, let's go to the next question here. After the Catechism affirms that God does require perfect obedience and that He is not unjust to require this perfect obedience from fallen men, it deals with the question from another angle. So instead of backing out, it goes further down the path of this logic and says that men are still held accountable and will be punished. Notice that neither Zacharias Yersinus or Uh, Hercules Collins and the Orthodox Catechism, uh, neither of them shy away from the scriptures teaching on this doctrine. Someone read question 10 for us, a question and answer to question 10.
1: Does God leave the stubbornness and falling away of man unpunished? No, he is angry in a most dreadful manner for the sins wherein we are born and which we ourselves commit in a most just judgment. He punishes them with present and everlasting punishments as he pronounces cursed is he that does not confirm all the words of this law to do them.
0: Okay, thank you. So God punishes sin and he punishes sin severely and he punishes sin justly and he punishes sin certainly. In other words, because he's holy, he cannot but punish those who violate his own holy law and character. So getting get back to what was mentioned earlier by Anthony and talking about God being just. He is opposed to all that which is opposed to his own holy character. Now, if God were just a man, that would sound self-centered. He hates everything that doesn't look like him or reflect him. Right? Of anybody else, we could say that's pride. But because God is God, because he is our creator, the fountain of source and life, and because he is the highest good of which man can conceive, and is himself holiness, and is himself the greatest good that can be conceived, anything not God is less than perfect and therefore less than what is our greatest good. If God lets us settle for anything less than him, For us to find our end in that then it's an idol and god is not uncharitable in this he's actually being kind to us because he refused to let us settle for something less than perfection the greatest good that can be conceived which is our greatest enjoyment right so god is actually good and holy and just in doing this for the punishment of sin to change god himself would have to become something less than pure and holy Because God is eternally immutable and holy, sin is eternally and immutably offensive, and therefore the punishment for sin is eternal and immutable. So if we expect God to sort of grade on a curve, we cannot say that without impugning God's own holy character and God being just, because God has to shift in his holiness in order for our accountability for sin. To a shift, right? And he doesn't, of course. Um, Galatians 3.10. Let me have someone read Galatians 3.10 and then someone else read James 2.10. So Galatians 3.10 and James 2.10. Who wants to read Galatians? All right, Matt and then James 2.10. Someone got that? Got it? Okay, Matt and then up front. Right. And then
1: for whoever keeps the whole law, but fails at one point has become guilty of all
0: of it. Okay. So we see again, the standard of perfection and righteousness. Uh, sometimes when it's time for us to, to go to bed, I tell my kids, all right, time to go to bed, take your bath, take your shower, get in the bed. Um, we're going to bed too. Daddy's tired. And so they'll take their bath and shower and come out. And say do we still have to go to bed i say yes i say but you're up daddy it's like <laughs> i haven't gone to the room but the law is still the same <laughs> go to bed right and they in and, and some sense right if i tell them go to bed because i'm going to bed they can make a case right they say well you shifted, so i should be able to shift this is not the case with god god is immutable he's holy he doesn't shift in his standards or his word like Daddy does sometimes, right? Uh, God is fixed; He's a simple in His being. Um, when we are, when we look around at the world we live in, at times we feel as if the wicked get away with their wickedness. The unbeliever sins and seems to flourish in this life and enjoy all the types of all types of gifts and pleasures, although they got their gifts and pleasures through sin. They cheat, they steal, they scheme, and they seem to be fine and happy and at ease. Always on vacation, always relaxed. You let like Instagram tell the story, that's what's happening. Uh, they, they never have issues. You let the, the promotions and the ads and TV tell the story. Um, but it's interesting in Psalm 73, you find Asaph with the same confusion and frustration with the wicked. Turn to Psalm 73, I wanna read this, this passage. Psalm 73, we're going to start at verse 4 and then read through verse 15. And I'm, I'm reading this just and thinking about this question, does not God leave this stubbornness and falling away in man unpunished? And sometimes we think, well, they don't seem to be punished. They seem to be doing fine. Uh, but scripture tells us another story. Um, in verse 4 in Psalm 73, it says, uh, Asaph is looking out at the world and uh, the wickedness, and it says, for they, the wicked, have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In other words, they're eating good. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in their riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean, and wash my hands in innocence. In other words, they're doing evil, but doing good. Why am I going through this effort of trying to live righteous and holy? All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. So he has a perspective of the wicked initially in his mind. And he's wondering about his own sanctification. You know, I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm in fellowship, I'm doing all these things. The wicked seem to not care at all, and they seem to be doing great. They're on yachts, and they have nice cars, and the family seem to be thriving. But then he comes into the sanctuary of God, and his reason returns to him. And he says, ah, you did say this. You put their feet in slippery places. They will be utterly destroyed in a moment. Right? Scripture, the congregation, the assembly of the saints... Uh, aligns his thoughts again his perspective um, and he is corrected by the word and by the fellowship of the saints let us not be fooled by our own understanding the scriptures tell us that they are not at ease one of the ways that they're punished in this life is the sting of their conscience and we can't we can't even say that. Well, in the very end, they'll be punished. They're, they're fine now. They enjoy all of God's gifts. Oh, it's only in the end. No, don't don't be deceived by that either. Their consciences are punishing them. Romans two fifteen says they know that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Their conscience accuses them or their conscience excuses them. Romans 2.15. Now, the word translated there, conflicting thoughts, their conflicting thoughts accuse them, means to uh, compute, to, to calculate, to weigh, and to count up. So we could say the wicked seem at ease, but the reality is that their sore conscience is actually calculating and reasoning their actions as sinful and presenting the evidence to their minds. You're guilty for what you just did. You know this is wrong. Uh, The conscience is given to us by God, by virtue of us being the image of God. Uh, We can travel a lot of places. We can leave bags at home and leave bags in a hotel and go out and explore Italy and very great places. But what we can't leave behind is our hearts. The wicked cannot leave their conscience behind as they go explore. Even when you think about Scripture talking about the man who has a seared conscience, even that is a judgment. They can't escape, and we shouldn't be fooled by thinking that they are at ease because they are not at ease. Romans 1, 18 through 20. Let me have someone read those verses for us. Romans 1, 18 through 20.
1: By their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse
0: Okay. so they are without excuse <clears throat> and they will feel the pressing of God's holy standard and judgment in this life and eternally in the next. Um, which leads us to the next question, question 11. Is not God therefore merciful? Now, uh, c- Coming off of question 10, does not God leave this stubbornness of falling away of man un- unpunished? It says, yes, he actually, he will punish it. But is he also not merciful? The answer, yes, very much so. He is merciful, but he is also just. Wherefore, his justice requires that the same which is committed against the divine majesty of God should also be recompensed with extreme, that is, everlasting punishment, both in body and soul. God is holy, he's merciful, and he's just. Psalm 145.9 says, his tender mercies are over all of his works, both the believer and the unbeliever experience the mercies of God. Both experience the sun and the rain. Right? Both experience God's good providence and God's bad providence. Yet because God is our creator, it is completely up to him to punish and reward according to his own holy character. Now I want to got about five minutes here. Um Maybe 10. I want to look at a passage and see if I have time to to work through it. Um, Someone go to Exodus 34, 6 through 8. Go ahead and read that and I'll make a couple of comments and maybe read another passage here. Exodus 34, 6 through 8. He wants to read that for us. Arnie, thank you. So we see scripture speaking of our God's character as merciful, as holy, as gracious, as faithful, as just, who will by no means clear the guilty. Sometimes when we think about the character of God, we can think, well, God is 60 percent love and 40 percent just or merciful. Or he's 20 percent this and 20 percent that and then 60 percent this. And we, we compartmentalize God uh, but scripture teaches that our God is one he is a simple being uh, divine in essence uh, one in his uh, divine holy just merciful faithful nature he can't be compartmentalized out. So when we think about God's love we have to hold up his love in relation to the reality that he is also just we can't say he is love and neglect his justice Uh, We can't look at God's scriptures that talk about the love of God and ignore scriptures that talk about God's justice. For instance, uh, Exodus 34, he will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, Romans 9, I'll just read that a bit. Um, Starting at verse 10, it says, And not only also, but also when Rebekah had uh, conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either bad or good, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of, his own, of the one who calls, he was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Scripture places God at the forefront of his own decree. Um, God is his decree and says that he determines the one on whom he has mercy and exercises justice. All of this leads us to the reality that there will be a punishment for sin. God doesn't sweep sin under a rug, um, no more than we expect a good judge to execute a wrong judgment. Um, If someone's friend or family member were hit by a drunk driver and they went to court and the judge says to the person that committed the the crime, uh, "Are are you very sorry? And they say, Yes, I'm very sorry. And I said, Are you really, really, really sorry? And they say, Yes, I'm I'm really sorry. It's okay, you can go. Uh, Court dismissed. We would cry out, Injustice, wrong. You are a bad judge. Uh, When it comes to God, we can't lower these standards. He is the standard of justice. He cannot just sweep sin under a rug. Uh, The same holiness of God that rewards obedience which we have through christ must punish sin because he is holy again in his character uh, matthew 25 47 or 41 rather says then he will say to those on his left depart from me you curse into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels uh, psalm 75 7 through 8 says it is god who judges he brings one down he exalts another and the hand of the Lord is the cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked on the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, And the devil who, has, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Forever and ever language is has a relation to the very nature of God as eternal. It says forever and ever because God is forever and ever. And because any one sin is committed against a God who is eternally holy and eternal himself, the punishment for that sin rightly is eternal. This is why we uh, reject uh, the idea of a purgatory or a temporal state of cleansing of one's sin, that they may be made righteous and then enter into heaven. Or other false theories like conditional immorality or universalism or the restoration theory. Um, Conditional immorality says that theory built on the error that all do not receive eternal life. who, who Who do not receive eternal life will die as the animals and will be annihilated and wiped out of existence. So there's just nothing for them. You hear that a lot. Well, you just go black. That's a false theory. Universalism. The universalistic theory holds the idea of universal redemption. For example, a certain number of scriptures references are used to prove that Christ died for all men alike. Uh, By this point in this class and past classes, we've realized that Christ has not died. His blood is not shed for all men. If Christ's blood is shed for a man and that man perishes, then Christ's blood was shed in vain. And we know that's not the case. I don't have time to look at those scriptures now, but... um, the restoration theory, this view called by some uh, restitutionism, appeals to the universalists in that it does not deny that all men are lost, but that sometimes, somewhere, all creation, including Satan and fallen angels, will be restored and reconciled to God. Well, that contradicts what we just read in Revelation. They'll be tossed into the lake of fire, burning with sulfur forever and ever. These scriptures, these truths are weighty um, and they can be hard, but they should have a gravitas to them where we feel the weight of them. uh, Because if we come to these and say, well, God is just a mean God. He's just a kid with a magnifying glass burning up ants in the end. Then we've completely misunderstood um, or sinfully misdiagnosed our own condition and the holiness of God. If we come to the end and say God is unjust to punish sin, then the issue doesn't start there. The issue started way back when we thought about the nature of God himself and we looked at our own condition. Um, God must punish sin because God is holy. Uh, Yet, as this question says, God is merciful. Where do we find the mercy of God? In the cross of Christ. Where do we find freedom from the wrath of God? In God himself. Flee from the wrath of God into God himself, which provides our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel.